You're listening to Coffee Talk with the Liturgy Guys. Excuse me. I happen to be passing. I thought you might like some coffee. Oh, that's very nice of you. Thank you. Because if beer is proof of God's love for us, then coffee is proof of his mercy. Oremus, caffeine, come to my assistance. Put that coffee down. This is not a real episode of The Literature Guys. Coffee's for closes only. There's no topic that we're discussing, and we're not even talking about liturgy the whole time. Are you telling us absolutely everything? Not exactly. We're also out of coffee. <laughs> so without further ado, another Coffee Talk episode of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. Sh- sh- shout out. <laughs> Were you just waiting for me to press record? Yes. <laughs> shout out. Aren't you doing a shout out? Uh, yeah, we're doing three shout outs, actually. Shout out. No, so I've done three, too. Yeah, we have three shout outs. And I may pronounce, mispronounce your name, so sorry about that. And these are shout outs for what? For being Patreon supporters? For Patreon supporters. Yes. So, so shout out to Bill Nalepka. Cool. Joanna uh, Malton. And Michael Riopel. There you go. Riopel. Thank you, Patreon supporters. Yeah, it really helps us out a lot. And if you want to support us on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. And uh, what expenses would the liturgy guys have, you might ask? Well, equipment, hosting, Jesse's salary, because he doesn't work for free, strangely, <laughs> like I do. And um, whatever else we, their actual bills well, to pay. Yeah. And there, you know, we have to go and meet Chris and travel and all this stuff. So yeah. like, there's a lot that goes into these That's shows. Right. Nothing's free. Nothing is free these days. Right, yeah. Kevin? Absolutely right. Okay, Kevin. Kevin's joining us for Coffee Talk. Yep. Here's some not coffee. Dennis is drinking tea for Coffee Talk. It is constant comment green tea. Ceaseless chatter? Yes. It's called the never shut up tea. Oh, yeah. Never. We had forget. a priest a student here from Canada, A, named Father Jeffrey Kurzlake, and he always used to say, are you having a cup of never shut up? And he would just offer, he's like, <laughs> can I get you some never shut up? And then I knew what he was talking about. Constant comment tea, which is awesome. We're not getting kickback from there, but I do enjoy the tea. How long have you been drinking tea? I could never get into it. My parents were tea drinkers. You know, they're Irish, so they weren't really coffee drinkers in my house. So when I was little, my grandmother used to give us tea with a big giant cups of tea with lots of milk and sugar in it in this little apartment in New York City. So there I was, five years old, bored, stuck on the couch in an apartment in New York City with nothing to do. And then she'd caffeinate me and then expect mm. me to sit still. I'm not bitter about that anymore. Bitter, it wasn't bitter tea? It wasn't bitter tea, but it was like <laughs> bang, 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 I, I, off the wall. I never even liked iced tea. Like I would do maybe like an Arnold Palmer, which is like the half and half. But Yeah, that's something else though. Yeah, it's totally a different. big hot cup of Cream-filled, sugar-filled, no, classic tea. Never had it. Mm. It's good. Although, I did go to India once, and they have chai there. It's their tea, and they, they do put milk and sugar in it. It was mm-hmm. very good. Everything's good with milk and sugar. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, have you consistently been drinking tea since you were little? Uh, I don't drink it, like, every day. I'm a coffee drinker now in the morning, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty regular. That was what we would do, drink tea. Yeah, Cold I never days. had the taste for it. Yeah. And I never thought I'd like coffee. I always loved the smell of coffee. You have to make coffee for my dad or mom in the morning or whatever. And he'd be like, yeah, Jesse, go get me a cup of coffee or whatever. So, really? You were like your mom oh, and dad's yeah. coffee bleep? My, my dad, when he would get home from work, it was like this like series of commands. You know, he would lay down on the couch and he would just shout out everything he would need. And then we would have to run out and go get it. So he'd be like, coffee, slippers, newspaper. And then remote. <laughs> if we were watching something, he'd be like, remote. Or, or 
this is the other thing, is if he didn't have the remote and he didn't care, he would just start shouting what channel he would want to watch. Mm-hmm. So he'd just be like, channel nine, channel nine. Pedicure. <laughs> Pedicure. Um, so yeah, we, we made the coffee all the time. I never, I always loved the smell. I never really liked the taste of it. And then I, after college, I started drinking How it ironic. Now you're hosting Coffee Talk. I know. But coffee black is still just a little too much for me. I have to have a little bit of cream. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to cut the bitterness yeah, of yeah, it. Exactly. So, exactly. Um, and of course, I do love like the lattes and the things like that. You've been getting into lattes, right? Not really. No. I thought uh, I thought you had been drinking those because they kind of deal with the caffeine a little bit better for you or something. Yeah, they help on the the tum tum. Yeah. My my stomach does not like coffee, even though my brain does. Uh, but you know what I read today? Me, everybody, everybody of me loves coffee. A new study that coffee does not keep you awake at night. How about that? That can't be possible. I don't know. I saw it on the some, internet. No, it was some UK <laughs> newspaper today. Nicotine and alcohol mess with your sleep, but apparently late night coffee does not. Who knows why? What about like soda? Is it just they caffeine? Didn't, that wasn't, wasn't one of the studies. It mm. was caffeine, alcohol. Well, it was coffee, alcohol, and nicotine. I used to be kind of unaffected by you know, drink a soda before bed or do any of that stuff before bed. Now you're but Now old. it's starting to have, affect me a little mm-hmm. bit more and it's getting harder for me to fall asleep. You have a few toes that. in the grave. Soon it'll be a one foot in the grave. Then <laughs> you'll be up to your knee in the grave. I'm, I'm only 34. I think yeah, I have uh, Well, you have some time. Yeah, but you just never know. Guess what? I got accused of being 38 years old yesterday. Uh, that's very... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kevin, one, Kevin. One of the get, priests, I did this... You get an applaud from the peanut gallery. I did this uh, retreat for the Rockford seminarians, Rockford, Illinois seminarians, a great group of guys, very interested in liturgical things. And one of the newly ordained priests said, oh, how old are you? Like 38? And I was like, no, I'm going to be how old next month? 82. Yes. And that is an amazing preservation for me. (laughs) No, I'm going to hit the half century mark on Mary's birthday, September 8th. Five. Oh, that's a big deal. Yep. Uh, I will never be that old. I don't think. Yeah. If you're lucky. When, oh, have you heard this joke? I forgot who I, I want to say it was like Ron White or something. Some like old school comedian. Um, he said, uh, my grandpa was kind of a hard man. And he would sit, you'd go up to him and he'd say, hey, how old are you? And you'd say, oh, I'm seven. And he would say, when I was your age, I was eight. <laughs> <laughs> and I was working in the mine. Oh, that's such a good joke. Mm-hmm. All right. What I are we a, here for? What are we talking about today? I have a couple Jesse. questions for okay, you. Okay, good. I love questions. I, I really want to kind of set into place uh, the hierarchy of things in, inside of the church. Okay. Because uh, I, I'd like to answer it in two ways. One, kind of like the, the architecture aspect of it, but then also the actual liturgical aspect of it. So we, we have classes here on different aspects. We have a class on music. You know, I, I, I want to know... You know, where does music sit in terms of the hierarchy of importance of liturgy? And I think this is important because if you're a liturgist or you're planning liturgies or you're trying to instill some type of liturgical renewal, I think it would help to say, like, where are the first things? Because we hear that in the church documents, mm-hmm. first things first. So so what are those? What are we going to pay attention to first in, well, in do you remember instances? when I cried a bit when we were going through Sacrosanct and Concilium, the music chapter, mm-hmm. and it said... None of the fine arts are more important than music because it's integrally connected to the rite itself, right? Singing the text is actually say, is involves the text. I mean, you can have a nice church, you can have a stained glass window, but you can have mass without a stained glass window. You can't have mass without the text. Mm-hmm. And so when the music is the art that's actually interwoven with the text and then transfigures it, 
from just plain old speech to this love song of the Son and therefore all the members of the mystical body, which is us, to God the Father by the Holy Spirit, then you'd say that's really important stuff uh, compared to some other thing like, you know, the house plants or the flowers or mm-hmm. um, how the Wait, well, sacristy about like is set up. a procession, up. like if a, if a proper liturgical procession against music. Okay, so music's going to be more important than that. But if we're starting to kind of pay attention to what we're doing in the Mass, how can we start to kind of formulate those building blocks? Because I, I would think that if I was involved in a parish and I wanted to kind of start saying, hey, let's start to do some things a little better, maybe mm-hmm. the way that they're prescribed. Mm-hmm. I think music is a good place to start. Um, not everybody can do that. So what are some other more important things to be considered? Well, the most integral thing to the most important part of the Mass, I, I don't like talking about most important because then it makes it sound like other things are unimportant and you, and you creep into this kind of incremental minimalism. Well, as long as I do that, then I can leave that alone. But let's I just assume yeah, we're starting from most places at an already accomplished, achieved minimalism, right? If you're going to start <laughs> making things better. You know, the first thing that's very easy is um, say the words in the book and do the rubrics of the book, right? This is a kind of baseline minimum. When you learn to drive a car, you don't go through red lights and you don't hit cars, right? It's just the, the rules mm-hmm. of the road and the law of the road is the way you drive. And so immediately just use the directions and the words in the book. That's probably the most important thing that you can do. And then for the priest to uh, comport himself in a manner that is proper to what he's actually doing. So he's going in to look at the face of God, being a sacrament of the Son, Christ mm-hmm. the Son, and the love of the Holy Spirit, giving the prayers and petitions of us and drawing down graces and asking the Holy Spirit to transfigure these grain and wine offerings and that's serious business. Right? If you were going to go see Queen Elizabeth and get presented, you wouldn't be like, oh, hey, Lizzie, I'm Mr. You know, <laughs> Lizzie. <laughs> clown, clown here. I uh, call her Q Liz. Q Liz, yeah. Q Liz 2. Q Liz 2? Yeah, you would just be like, hey, clueless Q Liz, what's, uh, what's up? What's mm. up? Right? And so the, the way you do things, the way you comport yourself, is not just because the rule says so, but it's so you know. And my, is every choice that the priest celebrant makes making him more a sacrament of Christ or less a sacrament of Christ? And then the question is, why do you want to be a sacrament of anything? Back to my favorite line from Eve Congar, the presence of God is holy and confers holiness, right? So everything mm-hmm. liturgically is supposed to confer in one way or another the presence of God, whether it's the art, the architecture, the music, the vestments, the preaching, the way the gospel is proclaimed, the flooring under your feet as you walk up to receive communion. One way or another, you're knowing the presence of God. Some are more direct and immediate, like the Eucharist, and then some come out, you know, by extension, but it's the same kind of thing. If you um, don't love your wife, you're not the presence of God for her. It's God who is love itself. And so everything liturgically has that teleological approach. That's its end. What end is it put to and the end is to people can encounter God and when they're transformed when they encounter God they're transformed by that encounter so that's the uber rule and that's is that kind of like a catch-all so like I'll, I'll just throw out an example of something I learned uh, when the when the gospel's being proclaimed um, you shouldn't lift the gospel up in the air and say the word of the Lord because it the Latin is uh, verbum domini verbum domini not verbum script Scriptum, scriptum, scriptum. Yeah. So it's the it's the spoken word of the Lord versus the written word of the Lord. Right. And what's the word of the Father is Christ. In other words, Christ has been made knowable to you. The so book, like with the book the, is the vehicle, but the book is not Christ for you. But this kind of following what the church says, that would kind of catch that should catch that because it doesn't say in the general instruction 
elevate the gospel mm-hmm. and declare. Right. Usually, a, the a, church tells us what yeah. what she wants us to do because those are the rules that guard and um, extend out the sacramental encounter that you're supposed to have. So Chris is really good at all those rubrics. I'm not so good at that. But, you know, when you talked about the Easter vigil and the, the incense goes in front of the candle and the candle's in front of the priest mm-hmm. uh, coming in from the back and the pillar of cloud is the presence of God in the Old Testament. The pillar of light is also the Old Testament, but Christ is the new light. And then the person who is the sacrament of Christ, the bishop comes in after that and he's like, oh yeah, one, two, three. Three, two, one, just because you feel like it, you're, you're not actually sort of making present this knowledge of the salvation history as cloud, candle, and uh, bishop indicate. So rules are not there for the sake of themselves, but they are there to make the sacramental encounter encounterable. And then in terms of furnishings, it's the altar, which is the principal place. Then we have probably, is the, the tabernacle has nothing to do with the liturgy per se, right? Well, it does to the degree that, you know, you have the, Eucharist reserved there and you can use it. So usually the three principal um, liturgical furnishings are considered the altar, ambo, and chair. And then it extends out pretty quickly to baptistry. And then tabernacle would probably be up there. Most people think tabernacle first, right? Real presence mm-hmm. is housed here. Um, but that's not quite right. The altar is first. I remember when I was young and... But if you're just going in, there's no mass, the, the tabernacle is first, right? Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Once you separate tabernacle and altar, it's hard to say. But the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist is is principal, I suppose, yeah. outside of Mass, right? But the principal furnishing is the altar. Because mm-hmm. the altar is Christ standing amidst his people. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. were about to say something. I don't, I don't remember now, so you'll <laughs> have to ask me something else. Dang it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so why do you think it's so difficult to, for lack of a better way of describing this, just follow the script. Why, why do we, what's with this going off script thing where it's like, oh, we're going to do this or we're going to do that? Is it, do you think it's mostly just the catechetical thing uh, that people were not probably catechized or is it this idea of um, we're kind of, we're going to kind of have this postmodern view of a, a more personal Jesus where we can have, you know, that that be the core principle like those are those are the guides Mm -hmm. but we have all this free space within those guides i mean if you had to guess well i think the people who are old enough to remember mass before vatican ii and they're getting fewer and fewer no offense uh kevin but um they remember this hierarchically rigid almost lifeless approach to liturgy so the priests would turn around and they would look down at the floor when they said, the Lord be with you. So you didn't even see them. And they're talking to you, but they're not looking at you, right? This sort of loss of personality so that Christ could be a sacrament could come across as somehow like you're just a zombie, you know, like a corpse <laughs> who's, who's becoming a sacrament of Christ rather than a person. And so that balance between the individual's personality stepping back to become the sacrament of Christ versus just becoming kind of a, a, a dead-eyed, fish-eyed person so that Christ doesn't come through. That's always a balance. And so before the council, the, the claim was that oftentimes people were not lively enough, that liturgy didn't seem to involve the emotions of the people and the, the desires and aspirations of the people as much as it should. But what happened after that, there's different movements in theology. One of them is called experiential expressivism. This was big in Whoa. the 80s and 90s. I've never even heard of that. How come we haven't talked about that? Well, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's not really a big thing anymore. But when Monsignor Mannion was first here and we first started the Liturgical Institute, that was a little bit, you know, past its prime maybe, but it was still around that the expression of things and expression of self and the experiencing of uh, ritual that drew out um, 
kind of an emotional response that that was authentic. That was authentic liturgy. And, you know, in the long history of the sad divisions between the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches, um, if you give away this sort of objective reality that Catholics have, right, matter and form and intention, and you have Eucharist, whether you feel it or not, um, something had a substitute for that. And a lot of it comes from the 19th century, this, this romantic move that feelings are authentic. And so if you have a religious feeling, then you know something has hit you and you've encountered God. Where in the Catholic tradition, we say, well, if matter and form and intention are there, we are encountering God in the Eucharist. And so the kind of downplaying yeah, wow. of feelings. Then in the 70s, it came roaring back, oh, you know, it's not authentic unless I have an authentic feeling and I have to be like, you know, close to people and sing a song that comes from my heart and have an expression that's what I want to say rather than you know what God wants to say through me. And so the rise of the personal and the subjective kind of overwhelms the objective and the universal. This is the stuff we've been talking about the whole time. You know, this mm -hmm. is what um, um, Guardini said in his spirit of liturgy, that the universality of the liturgy and then the subjective quality of the liturgy. In his day, he was worried about the subjective quality of the liturgy because people were doing rosary and sacred heart devotions and other, you know, emotionally supportive prayers rather than the kind of fixed universality of the liturgy. And what do we do in the 70s? Well, we just substituted other emotion-driven, devotional kind of understanding mm -hmm. of the liturgy and then kind of hacked away at the liturgy itself, replacing some of the readings, changing the songs to whatever we feel like, making them about us. We are, we are, we are. That's a, that's a big change that happens at, at that time. We are this, we are that, we, us, me, I. And the, and the, and the liturgies become a little more diverse. I mean, I was telling somebody the other day, I was like, if you go on vacation and you got to go to mass on Sunday, you, you just don't know what you're going to get mm -hmm. sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're just like, man, I, I hope, I hope this is a good liturgy. I hope it's valid. I hope that it's true and beautiful, but there's a little less universality across the liturgy now that was there before Vatican II. But yeah, there are abuses before the council too. And people will tell you and tacky music and, techie kind of solos you know miss mary mm -hmm. smith sings how great they are you know and everybody claps in their mind mm -hmm. and she, she's just like the performer so the performing aspect of liturgy was, has been there for a long time it's always a, a, a danger that if you're going to sing that you're not losing yourself to the text but you're becoming the, the diva opera singer but universality is a mark of the church unity mm -hmm. of the church that's why we have the same missal so that everybody's doing the same thing they're sacramentalizing the same reality now there's legitimate variety right we know right. that agreed yeah and so there are places where the priest is permitted to say something but even then it should be sober dignified and elevated you know if it were your high school graduation or your college graduation or some other event like your you know wedding speech you know you see sort of the drunken uh groomsmen or something mm -hmm. you know goofs around during the wedding reception and sort of ruins everything you know it's like it's important that you treat it with sober dignity because that's what an important thing is like and so if the mass is if the celebration of the mass is not given the kind of grandeur that it would have in heaven and mark to us how important that is then you're sort of just violating the nature of the thing but more importantly people are not able to encounter what they're supposed to encounter which is the grandeur of god mm -hmm. and the nature of the heavenly perfection and it's just our earthly goofing around, we, we can do that at home. You know, why go to Mass for that? This is what I really like about what Pope Benedict XVI talks about, the mutual enrichment, because, and we talked about this when we did the podcast on Sumorum Pontificum, but the, the, these two kind of side-by-side -side comparisons, or dare I say extremes, where we're trying to find that happy middle where we do, we can get that emotional 
experience, but in a way that is caused by or brought up brought upon by the the full, true, beautiful, unified worship of the corporate body of Christ altogether. I mean that ha- you that has to have some type of emotional feel on you. It has to, of course. But you don't have to sacrifice, you know, any of this, you know, right worship to be able to get that too. And right. it shouldn't be the primary goal is to like, what do I feel? Right. If you are on the football team and it's halftime and you're down by 20 points or whatever, and the coach is giving you a speech, he's trying to get your passions up, right? Excitement, enthusiasm, you know, whatever chemicals are released in your brain, adrenaline, and you go out there, yeah, 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 we're going to do it, right? So it's this bottom up kind of excitement and generating a lot of energy and self-will. Mm-hmm. And so that can seem like something authentic because you have this feeling like, oh yeah, I'm going to go beat the other team. But the encounter with God is a different kind of thing. It's not generated from us. We don't whip ourselves into a, a Dionysian frenzy. How's that for a, a word? <laughs> <Good> Dionysius, <laughs> Dionysian frenzy. Yeah. Dionysius was the ancient God of um, wine and orgies and you know, things like that. So it was the, the Apollonian side was Apollo that was rational, intellectual inquiry. And then Dionysian was the sort of bodily and uh, excitement. And so there was kind of always that battle. Is it the brain that's leading? Is it the passions that are leading? And so an encounter with God gives you a physical bodily experience, but it's primarily an experience of God that's top down. You're like, whoa, I don't know what happened. I just had this transformative moment. I didn't work myself up into some frenzy rolling on the floor in, in some kind of um, you know, mass hi- hypnosis. Um, so just saying, oh, if we sing happy songs, people will have religious experience isn't quite right. How do we make the things of the liturgy sacramentally so transparent to the encounter with God? And then you get this deep, deep um, emotional uh, what would you call it, a uh, condition or response, but it's a response that's not generated by us. It's because God has just come in, touched your heart, and changed you for the better. And then you fall on your knees in gratitude and, and tears and all that sort of stuff. Which is kind of difficult, difficult because it's not like a formulaic process. It's not like, you know, sometimes we just want to look at the Mass as like a recipe. Like, if we do all these things and put these ingredients in here, then boom, we have this. And like, mm-hmm. again, that's the same thing where we're trying to create something that's dependent upon our actions and when you get when you walk down that road you start to go pretty far off the course and you know I I like what Chris always talks about like God allows us to encounter him through our humanity Mm -hmm. because we're made in his image well there's no other way right right we have senses and he has to but we we are emotional beings and so you know, the natural thing to want to do is to have those encounters with the emotional experience. So mm-hmm. I understand the drive there, you know, like right. I, like praise and worship music. I love it. It's, it's, um, it, it provides for me like a feeling that I don't get mm-hmm. listening to other type of music. Right. It's not liturgical music. And how many times have we said it? Devotional right. music is mm-hmm. good, right? Mm-hmm. Devotions are meant to stimulate the desire so that when you go to stand in the face of God, you're like, whoa. I really know what I'm doing. I am so ready. My heart is open to your action, Lord. Um, but substitution, substitution of devotions for liturgy is, mm-hmm. is not a good thing. But I just love, I just love the, going back into this, uh, the high priest and Yom Kippur with the, the garment of the 12 stones representing the tribes of Israel. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is just, the, it's the, it's the, you know, original covenant liturgy that we kind of draw upon. And it's such a beautiful image. And I think it's, it's the best thing to look to or look toward 
to be able to figure out what are we supposed to be doing. And it, when you understand that orientation, you understand that sacrifice on the behalf uh, and the priest going on behalf, it, it helps you to orient your mind and your heart in that way so that you're not relying totally being dependent on your emotions. Mm-hmm. That, that is dangerous. Like, you know, when I was in college, we had all these really great emotive songs and praise and worship and drums and guitars. And like when I would go to mass, I would feel so high and I like felt really good. And then I would go to pretty much any other mass would be like, oh, that's terrible. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't valid because I didn't feel anything. Yeah, and you get a kind of uh, adrenaline addiction. Yes. Yeah. The, I, I, I wanted that euphoria of, you know, feeling close to God, which is a human want. Mm-hmm. It's a human need. Especially at the beginning of things, right? You have all this excitement and then life settles down. You know, all the intense romantic feelings of dating become, oh, I woke up next to you again. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. The kids are crying in the middle of the night or you're in a bad mood or, mm-hmm. oh, I hate that you make me do X, Y, Z or you're obsessed with this. And you have to learn that it's a discipline and not just euphoric excitement all the time right and you need the balance you need both you need the intelligent worship and you need that emotional experience as well because anytime you you can go the other way too where you're like so in your mind that you're not actually truly offering yourself and you're and this happens to me like you know we've been having you know mass every day here and i've been helping out with serving and being canter and stuff and it's like that happens to me where I'm like, okay, I have to do this, and then mm-hmm. I have to do this, and then mm-hmm. I have to do this, and then like I I don't have any of the emotions because I'm trying to focus on the actual tasks that I have to do, and that kind of goes in the extreme the other way where it's harder for me to actually emotionally offer myself in the liturgy because I'm really worried about the intelligent mm-hmm. aspect of what I'm right. supposed to be doing. But we do both, right? Because we're people with intellect mm-hmm. and we're people with emotions, but. Generally, in the view of the powers of man, as they used to say in the old textbooks, was that intellect and will were at the top. And because intellect was how you would guide your will, right? Your will might want all kinds of things, but if it's not the right thing, your brain has to kind of steer it, you know, like the... I'm still learning that. The wild horses (laughs) want to run, but somebody has to hold the reins. And then beneath that would be other kinds of knowing, you know, sense experience and other things. And so it's the intellect that always controls and deals with feelings. So you have all kinds of feelings. You might want to kill somebody. You might want to do drugs. You might want to do all kinds of feelings that demand you to actually intellectually assess. Is that right? How do I suppress that and raise that up? And so at the end of the day, intellect has to be the controlling figure of worship. Now, hopefully intellect is taking the feeling and then knowing what it is, offering it to God and the feeling gives the energy to the intellect and the intellect keeps the energy from just going wherever it wants. And so they're both there. Intellect without feeling is just kind of a dead letter. And vandalization power is is based in huge amounts of emotion. But if it's just wild, then it's just electricity, you know, arcing, sparking around and not actually producing anything. It's like a controlled burn. Well, yeah, exactly. (laughs) The burn, you need the burn, right? You need that energy. But if the energy is not focused on you know, a task or doing the right thing, then it's just... I mean, this wasn't my intent, but it sounds like there's even an internal hierarchy as well of kind of where you're supposed to be oriented and having first things first and second things second. And that, that was unexpected, and mm-hmm. I really like that. Yeah, and intellect and will, you know, are most godlike attributes, right? God is perfect act, right? It's always, you know, act um, all the time. And so that energy of God, this pure act is an intellectual and will situation, but you know, God doesn't have emotions like we think, but it, that outward moving love is perfectly guided by his intellect and will. And so we participate in all those things, but you know, like if you've been you know, beaten 
every day as a kid and your intellect and will are sort of distorted because all you're doing is self-protection, self-protection. The world is not safe. The world mm-hmm. is not safe. I have to turn into myself. I have to look for, out for number one because no one's looking out for me. Then you say, okay, well, there's emotions and will and intellect there, but they're sort of, you know, bent, curved in on itself, as Augustine would say. Mm-hmm. And so the part of the Christian task is to say, okay, how do I let my intellect and will, all this passion and energy that might come from a, a happy childhood or a terrible childhood, how do I get this directed in the proper way, like Christ would direct it to the Father, or the internal perfection of the Father? And so that's the challenge. That's what one of the things that liturgy does. It makes you sit still when you don't want to. It makes you say and sing things that you don't want to necessarily just like a Shakespeare play. Oh, I don't want to memorize Shakespeare lines. I want to say what I want. Well, Mm -hmm. no people then don't encounter Shakespeare. And so the will has to surrender to this larger uh, revealed good. That's a good point. You know, if we, this whole idea of like, well, I could do what the general instruction says, but here's kind of really what the point is getting across. So so this is what I'm going to do. Can you imagine an actor going to a director who's directing Romeo and Juliet and the actor saying, well, I know what Shakespeare wrote, but But I think I know better. But here's really the Mm -hmm. core of what he's trying Mm -hmm. to say. And I'm going to try and make it really relatable for the audience in a a way that is going to be very specific. Like that, I, I just don't see that happening. Right, and we kind of like it if you know if Queen Elizabeth came out and like did a little joke or something. Like, oh, the Queen came Hello, down to our Cleveland. level, <laughs> came to our level, and we'd be like, oh, she understands us, and it's kind of nice, right? But if she does it so often that she's not the Queen anymore and she's just kind of a buffoon, then she's lost mm-hmm. this notion that she deigns, you know, comes down to our level. So the liturgy is always above us and always relating to us at the same time. And I think most people who mess around with the liturgy are trying to make it more relatable. Oh, if I, you know, change the words to everyday oh, sure, speech. Yeah. But then what have you lost? You've lost the dignity of Queen Elizabeth. You've lost the dignity mm-hmm. of the nature of the liturgy itself, which is this heavenly perfection. And at some point, if you chip away at that perfection so much, then it doesn't have that transformative power anymore. It doesn't invite you to be higher than yourself. And so um, usually people have goodwill. They're like, oh, if I change this, then people feel more included or they feel more, more you know, welcome. But at the end of the day, are they actually encountering the transformative things that they want to encounter just because they feel welcome? So the human level, yeah, hey, people are nice here. That happens with the donuts afterward, right? Oh, you're new here? I've never seen you before. What's your name? How can I help you? You just moved in. Do you need help? You know, do you, whatever. That's where people feel welcome. But liturgically, everybody has the right and the expectation to say what the church ask to put the words of Christ on their lips, not the think, words of whoever. And you think about like as a parent, you know, I, I could give Isaac every single thing that he wants. And, and he will hate you for and, it in the end. And and he would he would love it. He would be like, oh my gosh, everything I ask for, I get. And I could do that. And I would want to do that because I love him. At the same time, I, he wouldn't have an authentic love for me. He would have this emotional feeling towards the benefits that he gets. And from he'd probably be dead. Yeah. Well, I want to play in the street. I want to play with, yeah, you know, I want to stick no, a fork in the electric socket. I want to step in front of a train. Well, no, you can't. Right. right. And so, you know, but, but also a love that he chooses to give me is like far more valuable to oh, me yeah. than a love that I like in a way bribed him. Right. Go over there and make a Valentine's card that says, I love you, daddy. And I'll give you five bucks. Or he just surprises you. I made this for you. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. That's freely given. And, you know, I tell my kids I love them every night before bed. They say that I love them. But the times where it's just like a random thing, mm-hmm. like during during mass this past Sunday, Agnes just went over to, to my mm-hmm. wife and said, 
mommy, I love you, and give her a hug. And then she did the same thing to me. Just really random, mm-hmm. but it was a very true and authentic. Yeah. And last time I was visiting my friends Andy and Sarah Swafford, their fourth child is my godson, and he just walked to me and said, I love you, D-Mac. Oh, <laughs> Four years nice. old. Very sweet. And he's like a high-energy kid, and he's got a lot of running around. He's not. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's prone to you know, sweet, sentimental stuff, but he just, he just felt it and said it, and that was really great. All right. Boy, that was a very good conversation. We can fill time about nothing pretty easily, I can't know. we? Yeah, absolutely. All right, until next Coffee Talk. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.